Welcome to the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast, brought to you by the University of New South Wales, Sydney. This series explores the impact of COVID-19 on various aspects of women's health and wellbeing. Hello, I'm Eileen Baldry, and you're about to listen to an episode of the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast, this time on domestic violence. I'm in conversation with Professor Jan Breckenridge to discuss the well-being of women who experience domestic and family violence in COVID-19 social isolation and other difficult contexts created by the pandemic. Professor Jan Breckenridge is an international expert in gendered violence and organisations, and she provides expert advice to government, private and third sector organisations on domestic and family violence, sexual assault and sexual harassment. She's Professor and Head of the School of Social Sciences at UNSW Sydney. Thank you very much for being with me, Jan. Um, Let's first discuss the context for this exploration of COVID-19 and domestic and family violence. Does social isolation and physical distancing, as we have at the moment, even though it's being slightly relaxed, But as we have at the moment with COVID-19 pandemic, does that increase the risk of violence for anyone affected in uh, domestic violence, family violence situations? And if that's the case, in in what ways does that happen? Oh, look, thank you, Eileen. It's a, a pleasure to be discussing these issues at the moment, although I would think despite a proliferation of blogs, articles, we're still really not knowing the ways in which COVID-19 is affecting different groups of women and whether there is increases, decreases, and if there are, what that means. I think the one point that I would make that I, I, I think is really important is that very often when we talk about domestic and family violence, we limit it to intimate partner violence. So we don't look at a broader range of people who are affected by uh, violence and abuse in relationships, whether it be as children, as older people, gay and lesbian and trans relationships, or people living in residential care facilities, people with disability or other reasons for being incarcerated or, or in institutional care. So I think the stats are often very much around intimate partner violence and our knowledge is limited. But in all of these situations, the thing that is really important to recognise is that physical violence is the most readily detected, identified, observed form of domestic and family violence. But in actual fact, if you speak to very many of the people affected, it's the coercive control, it's the psychological abuse, cruelty, torture, emotional abuse, cruelty, torture, the control. And one of the things that is pivotal in in coercive control is isolating the particular person who is affected to make sure that they can't disclose, that they only are in relationship with the perpetrator, the person who uses violence, abuse and coercive control. And so it's interesting that COVID-19 with social isolation, we're actually talking about social isolation, almost creates that perfect firestorm to further coercive control. Now, it's really interesting to think about how coercive control could be used differently for different cohorts as well, some very specific and new ways that coercive control can be exercised. For example, people with disabilities may not be allowed to go to medical appointments because they're isolating to protect them from COVID-19, whereas in fact, it's a way of controlling their health and their well-being. It may be harder for people to access supports 
if you have a perpetrator who's also at home, self-isolating or out of work or working from home, it may not be as possible to go for a regular appointment for either counselling or supported a, a domestic and family violence service. Uh, other, other vulnerabilities may well be race, cultural background, immigration status and also socioeconomic circumstances. For example, there are greater opportunities for financial exploitation. It can be that a partner may demand withdrawing superannuation savings and use those savings. People can undermine working from home much more easily if they're both in the, the family home at the time. And for very many women, they can have their work products sabotaged, destroyed, their passwords be locked out of their computers. So I guess being isolated in the family home is protective for COVID-19, but may actually work in an opposite way for people who are experiencing domestic and family violence prior to COVID-19. And also it's much easier for a partner to control movements, increase the surveillance. And if people are only allowed to leave the house for very specific reasons, it's much harder to access any support, any kind of assistance, or even for a conversation with others, or it may, again, further isolate them from family and friends. One of the things that has been picked up by the UNFPA is the probability and likelihood of unplanned and unwanted pregnancies and they are basically suggesting that there's going to be a globally disastrous impact on women. If lockdown continues for six months, the UNFPA reports forecasts that will result in 7 million unplanned pregnancies and 31 million gender-based violence cases. They believe that there'll be a surge in cases of child marriage and female genital operations, and they talk about it as a catastrophe within a catastrophe. One of the things that I think is really important, though, is that very often women will take extraordinary measures to protect children. And in this situation, it may well be with children also being at home that women are not prepared to make reports to other organisations or to alert any kind of scrutiny of situations of domestic and family violence. So they really might be choosing stability for their children and protection of their children over their own safety. So Jan, that's a, a really interesting line and, and important and quite distressing line to follow. So I'd, I'd like to focus a little bit more on that. You've just mentioned the UN report and we know anecdotally or we think we know anecdotally that domestic and family violence increases during times of crisis and particularly during times of enforced isolation for anyone who is vulnerable to that, but particularly women and women with the intersectionalities that you've just discussed. But here in Australia, well, particularly in New South Wales, we did fairly recently have a report from the Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research that reported that so far there had been no increase in reported domestic and family violence, no increase in reports to the police, that is. So I'd like you to tease that out a little more. Does that mean there isn't more? Does that mean that the COVID-19 pandemic and the social and physical isolation that that enforces has not necessarily made a difference to that. And maybe you might reflect a little on what you are hearing from people in the sector, from service providers, for example. Look, I think it's a really interesting question, but the first point that I would make is that very often people talk about reports as being the same as an increase in actual incidents of domestic and family violence. So 
really only what we're talking about is reporting as opposed to whether domestic and family violence itself is being perpetrated at a greater extent. I'd say with the Boxar report, really social distancing measures only commenced in New South Wales in mid-March. Their report was really comparing March 2019 and March 2020. And there isn't a great difference, but it really is only reporting on half of the time where social distancing measures at their harshest were employed. I mean, it may well be that people aren't able to report. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not experiencing domestic and family violence. They may be under scrutiny. I think another hypothesis that was put to me by one of my colleagues at the George Institute, Patricia Cullen, is that perhaps in times of crisis where gender roles are much more firmly in place or because of the capacity to scrutinise and, and control much more completely in the family home, there may not be as much actual violence, physical violence or sexual violence as there was prior to social isolation. I mean, it, it's interesting because the Boxar report is around and police are saying that they're not receiving any more reports. But if you look in New South Wales, the central referral points, this is where the number of cases that come in through the Safe Pathway program, they are saying that there's an 11% increase in referrals for the same period last year, although they're saying there's variance across different coordination points, so it's not necessarily across the board. Women's Safety New South Wales reported on a result of their survey, but they used percentages rather than numbers, so it's hard to know what a 50% increase might mean or what it means being up from 41% from the week prior. So sometimes it's hard to read the stats and what they really mean. One of the interesting things is that No to Violence and Men's Line have both noted quite a substantial increase in calls from men who are concerned about their behaviour whether it be around physical violence, coercive control, psychological abuse, and no to violence say that they've had a 94% increase in the usual traffic from self-referred callers to the service, which is an incredible increase in the number of referrals. 1-800-RESPECT is an example, though, where they've had a 5% decrease in the calls to the service, but a 20% increase in online chats, contacts, and viewing the service. Now, it may well be it's much easier to have a, a silent chat than a verbal phone call in, in self-isolation. It's, it's hard to know. But Safe Steps, a family violence crisis centre in Victoria, has seen a 30% decrease in service demand. And they're understanding that is very much about women not having the capacity to access the service in any meaningful way or safe way. The area that I think has seen a significant increase, and to me this isn't surprising, is around people reporting cyberbullying, image-based abuse and sex-based extortion. And the Safety Commissioner has said that it's more than tripled the number of reports since coronavirus restrictions took effect. A 21% increase in cyberbullying and a 48% increase in adult cyber abuse and 86% increase in image-based abuse and spikes in online child abuse material. So that's a, an incredibly serious increase in the number of reports. Again, we don't know whether that's an increase in incidence or an increase in reporting, but it wouldn't surprise me, given self-isolation, if there wasn't more time, availability, opportunity 
to participate in, in that type of psychological abuse and coercive control. The other thing that's happened, and Eileen, you would be aware of this at the university, is Zoom bombing and sex trolling. So people who are on Zoom conferences will suddenly be bombarded with child pornography or, or violent depictions of women and sexual assault. So these are newer forms of violence and abuse. Jan, this is a new area really, isn't it? It's, well, new in the sense of just really the last decade or so that it's become clear that social media is a powerful and really dangerous vehicle for domestic and family violence to be perpetrated. And people, I think many people are not really aware of that. So it's, um, it's really important for you to raise this and for people to be aware of it. And one of the things this makes me now ask is thinking about the whole range of domestic and family violence perpetrations that you have just outlined from things that we are more familiar with to uh, cyberbullying and, and um, social media trolling. How are counsellors being able to manage supporting people who experience these different ranges of um, domestic and family violence, given that they can't physically meet with the person, that it's probably in many cases very difficult for them to have a Zoom or a virtual chat because the perpetrator might be online or might be managing someone's phone or, or, or their computer. So, you know, what's the... What's the case for counsellors here? Well, I, I suppose like the universities, very many of the counselling organisations have had to go online with very little notice. And for some, it's worked reasonably smoothly for some of the larger organisations. But you do need to be very tech savvy. You need to know how to engage with people online as opposed to face-to-face because it's a different means of engagement. And I think it would be true to say that Assessing safety and risk is very difficult in a remote context. And what you would normally do in a counselling situation is to have an ongoing sense of risk assessment so that someone might be safe today, but they may not be next week when you're seeing them. So that that notion of ongoing risk assessment and how you make contact is very difficult because a counselling organisation ringing the house can actually put someone at much greater risk if the perpetrator were to find out that they're being contacted or talking about what's happening at home. I mean, having said that, I think there are some groups, for example, people with disabilities who have limited mobility, where that practice of online counselling or chats has been the way in which they've interacted with their counsellor in any case. So for some groups, it's probably more of the same. And there would be some organisations who would have stayed open during social distancing and would have taken risks for their clients. So I imagine that even though some will have gone online, there will be others that simply can't not provide those services because they know the consequences if they don't. I mean, the thing about technology, Eileen, going back to the point that you've just made, is that even though it is absolutely a means now to continue harassment, abuse, surveillance, and to enact coercive control, There are also some technologies and opportunities that allow for protection as well, but it requires for people affected by domestic and family violence to know how to use the technology, 
for example, safety alarms can work quite well. But if you have a woman who has a cognitive impairment or an intellectual disability, it may be very difficult for them to use the technology as effectively as you'd like. But other forms of technology around CTV cameras, security, particular security strategies, having people being able to make sweeps of your phone or your computer, and for people to become more literate in technology, that would actually be something that I think we really need to look at into the future. And Kylie Ballantyne and colleagues at SPRC and I looked at some technology trials in Queensland. And it's really obvious that that has to now be part of an arsenal of response tools to any kind of domestic and family violence. it's, It's the way of the future. So that's helpful, but it almost begs the question of the final area that I want to discuss, and that is um, innovative responses. So you've started to outline some of the innovative technology responses that this has called up in a way, but what else has been developed to provide support in this really extraordinary context? And as you've just mentioned, some of these things Uh, will be very valuable to carry through after the pandemic is over because they're proving helpful. Look, I've always been a great believer that in cases of domestic and family violence, very often people affected want information, they want practical solutions, they want a way to help the violence or abuse stop and to move on with their lives. Now, that's not to say that counselling isn't critical for very many. Of course it is. But some of these innovative responses, such as safe at home programs, but in relation to COVID specifically, there have been some awesome responses, things like in France, they've been providing alternative accommodation for women wanting to leave in hotels. They've also opened centres, having people specialising in domestic and family violence in grocery stores so that women can leave, legitimately leave the family home And they can go and get their groceries, which would not be seen as suspicious by a perpetrator. And they can say, I need help. In Spain, they've got instant messaging, linking with online chat rooms. And they've got a code message, Mask 19, that brings the police in for support. In Cumbria, in the UK, the police have enlisted postal workers and delivery drivers to look out for signs of abuse. You know, these are incredibly innovative ways of looking at responding to domestic and family violence. Another idea was pharmacies in France where people, they could be saying they're going to get medication or masks, but what they are actually doing is disclosing and they can leave their name, number and address and an alert for emergency services. And then they can go home raising no suspicion and police and support workers can arrive. One that I particularly liked was called a buddy check. And this is to do, this is bringing workplaces, which is, of course, an area that I'm passionately interested in. And it is a response to the 2020 pandemic. It's asking everybody in the workplace to be aware of their fellow workers and what their circumstances are. So if you're working from home, which is in the future, it's about always reaching out and being aware that someone may be at risk and having mechanisms in place that if you haven't heard from somebody or that there are specific code words. So it may well be that someone has already disclosed domestic and family violence to their employer and 
their employer is aware that they have still chosen to stay with a perpetrator, which they may do for their own safety or for the safety of their children because it may be more unsafe to leave. And it can be like a code word that they give in a report or that they check in or if they haven't heard from the person or they're monitoring their work performance and who's going on their computer, who's, who's accessing the computer and at what times. So it's a really important initiative. And it also means that it's a whole of community response to help keep everyone safe, to increase wellbeing and to make sure that we all take responsibility for wellbeing of, of all members of our community and society. Look, thank you so much, Jan. This is very good to finish on a, a note that says there are quite a number of innovative and positive responses to domestic and family violence in the middle of this pandemic. And I hope our listeners take some really interesting ideas away and feel that this is something that in the future uh, will make a difference to preventing and responding to domestic and family violence. And thank you also for making clear to us the whole range of ways that people can be subjected to domestic and family violence and for the intersections. So, look, thank you so much for joining me in our Women's Wellbeing Academy discussion on the impact of COVID-19 on the health and well-being of women who experience domestic and family violence. Thank you, Jan. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. My pleasure, Arlene. Thank you for inviting me. For more information about this podcast, our guests and upcoming episodes, please visit the UNSW Equity, Diversity and Inclusion website. 